0: Uh, The annual linguistic competition was held in London uh, later or earlier on in the year. Uh, It was actually won by a Guyanese man by the name of Samdar Baugabin. What a name. And he was able to, I think he won a trip around the world and a 25-year-old case of scotch, so he's going to be happy sooner or later, and uh, he answered this very difficult question. Here was the question. How do you explain the difference between complete and finished in a way that is easy to understand? Most people think they're the same, complete, finished. How do you explain it in a way that is easy to understand? And he won by his astute answer, here's what he said. When you marry the right woman, you are complete. When you marry the wrong woman, you are finished. (laughs) And if the right woman catches you with the wrong woman, you are completely finished. I don't know why that struck a chord with me. I think partly because we are relational people. We are built for relationship. and Whether we want to admit it or not, uh, it's important that we have people in our lives. Some of us are wired a certain way, and I'll put myself into this category where you have a lot of superficial friends. But you only allow a few people into the inner circle. That could be because of the way you're wired or because of family experience. Don't apologize for that. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's just some of us can only handle so many people at one time in the inner circle. Uh, My personality type I've learned is also, well, we make good husbands because we're extremely loyal and we tend to kill people who are not loyal to us. (laughs) I mean, that is true, but I'm different. I would never hurt anybody but those personality tops every personality top has some kind of tendency that it needs to get a hold of we've been in this uh, series where we've been trying to unwrap the christmas narratives we've learned about wonder in Luke 2 and grace and mercy in Matthew 1 and now we come to probably the most profound christmas passage of all and it's not even in the new testament it's in the old testament written around probably around 7 to 800 years before Jesus will even enter into our world, and it will remind us again that we are extremely relational, and there's something for which we all long. Now, I, Christmas, I preach a shorter message, so see that's already made you happy. <laughs> Merry Christmas! But I, I want to ask you. I know you're busy, and I know you got a lot going on, and kids, I know you guys are waiting for you know the big night. But I want you to just to take a few minutes here, and I want you to think about these things. Even the young, you'll go in and out at times, but I want you to think about, just for a few moments, this one thing, okay? One of my favorite Christmas movies, my wife and my daughter and I crawled up on the master bed in the master bedroom and watched, finished watching Elf. Anybody like Elf? Elf, Elf Christmas classic, Christ- fantastic movie. I laugh every time, and my wife rolls her eyes every time. But think about the movie for a second. This little boy gets trapped in Santa's bag by accident, transported to the North Pole, gets to the North Pole, rather than send him back to his home, they decide to keep him in elf land in the North Pole and raise him as an elf. There's only one problem. After he's like four years old, he's so much taller than everybody else. He doesn't look like an elf. He doesn't have any toy making skills. He doesn't have the pointy little ears. He's like a, a Giants fan at Dodger Stadium. You know, he doesn't belong. <laughs> he knows that. And he discovers that his real home is not Elfland, not the North Pole. And he does what most people do in the human experience. Then he goes on a journey, according to the movie, through the seven levels of the Candy Cane Forest, across the sea of twirly, swirly gumdrops, and makes his way into North America, more specifically, New York City to find his real family. And there are other subplots and themes in the movie, but I don't know if you realize, but it's basically the story of humanity. Elf ultimately wants to know, why am I here, where do I belong, and where's my real home? We've said in the past that even on the first Christmas, the irony that nobody's home The Magi have traveled from afar, which is probably Babylon because they're the ones who mapped out the stars and the sky and the constellations. Mary and Joseph are from Nazareth, but they've traveled to Bethlehem to take part in a census. The shepherds out in the fields watching their flocks by night. They've been visited by the angels, so they're told to leave their home, the fields, and go and find the baby who's wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, so they do. And then Jesus gets the award for having traveled the greatest distance to be here. But why? For what purpose does God step into our world? Isaiah 7, this passage says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and we'll call him, what, Emmanuel, which all good church people know means God with us. Now you know when we say that, there's a portion of the world that thinks we've totally lost it and we're loony, because they will say, what, come on. Can God really become a man? Isn't that an interesting question? The question isn't really, can God become a man? I mean, if God's God, he can do whatever he wants, right? Did he become a man and step into this world? And if he did, why? Did the God who made the constellations and the ocean depths and create you and me, break the concrete slab between the ideal and the real and step into our world? And if he did, why? What is the purpose of the first Christmas? Is there something other than this world, really? Is there something inside us that knows it, that we constantly struggle against? The late paleontologist Stephen Jay Gould said that if you could roll back the scroll of time, this world would never happen again, we would never happen again. What does he mean? Well, he means that nature is a freak of nature. You and I should not be here. This world should not be here. The odds are too astronomical. Once you're sold out for a material world that matter is all there is and it's all we're ever going to be, you have to give an explanation for how on earth this could happen and how could we happen. And He says, if you roll back the scroll of time, none of us would be here. We should not be here. Of course, he uses all the words that would define what we call a miracle, but you can't use miracle if you're committed to matter. Now, let me see. read that again. If you could roll back the scroll of time, this world would never happen again, we would never happen again. He's saying it's mind boggling. Our existence is miraculous. We really should not be here. But what's the problem? We are here, and kids, do you know what the Christmas story tells you? It tells you that aliens are real because you're one. Your home is another place. There is the supernatural. There is another world. It's the place where everybody in this room, ultimately down deep inside, knows is real. It's why you're discontent. It's why you can have a great relationship, but you know still there's something missing. It's why you can have intimacy with your wife, somebody that you love, and still there's something missing. It's why you can experience love and still there's something missing. It's why you can move in our Western affluent culture from happiness fix to happiness fix, and yet you know there's still something that's not quite right. It's why you look into the world and you see murder and rape and pain and suffering, you think, man, something's messed up here, hold on a minute. How do you know something's messed up here? If it's time plus matter plus chance, then it's the survival of the fittest. All this is random. So why do you have a problem with randomness? The reason you have a problem with randomness is you know in your gut this is not the way it ought to be, and your heart longs for something else that you know down deep inside is real. And The first Christmas is Jesus coming to show us that we don't really belong here. With all of its goodness, something is still missing, and his purpose was to take us home. We say something around here. We say, he left his home so that we would never again have to be homeless. As interesting as that is, there is another message of Christmas though that is greater, not necessarily in value, but at least in scope. Because if it's true, stay with me now, if it's true that he came to show us there is another place, if he broke the concrete slab between the ideal and real to show us this is what humanity should be like, this is what God is like, this is what heaven should be like and is like, then what I want to know, what most people want to know, okay, fine. One. If he came to take us home, what's the delay? Let's go. And Two, while I'm waiting, if I have to wait, and there's some grand design or purpose, is he going to be with me while I have to wait? Because this is a broken world. I'm a pastor. I see this all the time. Husbands are estranged from wives, brothers from sisters, children from parents. It is a broken world. In fact, some of you are dreading hanging out with your family during Christmas. That's the thing you dread the most. We are broken, so what does God have for us while we're waiting to go home? And Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born, a child is born, but a son is given. So there's a gift at Christmas, a son is given by God and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. Look at the names. Wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace, God with us. These aren't religion or religious terms. Religion is favor that is given to you because of what you do. Relationship though is favor that is given to you because of whose family you've come into as a son and daughter of the living God. The gift given to you is the presence of the living God, God with us, Emmanuel. That's a little daunting because that means if God is with you all the time, he has the goods on you. But it's supposed to be comforting to know he's a God of grace and mercy and is a God of relationship who's going to be with you. Why would a pastor want to talk about this on Christmas? It's because you have so many people who do attend church a couple times a year and this is one of them. Well, I'm glad. Welcome. Glad you're here. Always welcome. But I want you to know it's not about religion. It's about a relationship you can have with God. God is relational. The the uniqueness of the Christian faith is the doctrine, and one of them is the doctrine of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And the power of this system is that God and love and community pre-existed creation. There was perfect love and unity. Within the diversity of the Trinity, long before anybody or anything was made. So, the reason you have a longing to relate, to be married, to have friends, is because God wired you that way. You've been created in the image of God in the hopes that you would pursue the ultimate belonging and the ultimate relationship, the thing that everything else in your life is missing, you would find in your real home. So, that's why. There's a song written by Henry Francis Light, written actually in 1847, 1847, that is still sung today in all circles through Europe and the Americas and the South Pacific. You don't have to be a Christian to sing it, non-Christians sing it, non-religious people sing it, non-Christians sing it, atheists sometimes will sing it. It's so popular, so popular, we sing it at major sporting events, it's sung by the masses. Since the 1927 FA Cup Final between Arsenal and Cardiff City, the first and the last verses of this song are traditionally sung at every FA Cup Final about 15 minutes before kickoff. It's sung before the kickoff of every Rugby League Challenge Cup Final since 1929 where the first one was played at Wembley Stadium. It was performed at the 2012 Summer Olympics in the opening ceremony sung to commemorate those who had fallen in the London attacks in 2005. This song, because it represents the heart of humanity and the longing of humanity, has infiltrated or permeated every facet of society, music, sport, film, movies, television, literature, military services, weddings, funerals, kids, even cartoons. It was performed by Titanic's band as the ship began to go down, and hundreds of lives were lost. If you know your history, the nurse Edith Cavell is said to have sung the hymn in her jail cell the evening before the Germans executed her in 1915. The hymn is sung at presidential funerals, American presidents, highlighted especially in the funeral of Richard M. Nixon. It is sung at annual Anzac Day services in Australia and New Zealand, and in Remembrance Day services in Canada and the United Kingdom. and These are extremely secularistic countries with large atheistic populations, yet they bellow out this hymn. Even in New Delhi, which is primarily a Hindu state, every January 29th at the annual beating retreat ceremony, which marks the end of Republic Day celebrations. The Indian Armed Forces Band will loudly and reverently bellow out this song. George Orwell, Stephen Baxter, Steven Spielberg, all have counted on these lyrics to open up our eyes to the deepest human desire. The song itself was written by a man, again, Henry Francis Light, and he wrote the words in October 1820 while he was visiting a very close friend of his, William Lahunt, who was dying. And in the last hours, William Lahunt continued to say the same thing over and over and over again. And Henry Francis Light moved next to him and heard him say, over and over again, Abide with me. Abide with me. Asking God to abide with him. Francis Light finished the work and handed it to his friend's parents as a gift and didn't think much more about the song until 27 years later when he was near his own death, age of 54, that's my age. I know I look so much younger. That's another sermon. And in the course of everything happening, he finishes the song, struggling with tuberculosis, nearing the end of his life. Remembering that he connected it to a scripture in Luke 24, 29, where the disciples asked Jesus to abide with them, for it is toward evening and the day is spent. And so, as he finishes the song, nearing the end of his life, he told his family he wanted to preach one more time in his parish before he passed away. And the doctor said, Don't do it, it'll probably kill you. The family, because of the danger, said, Please, Dad, don't do it. And he gave them his favorite response. He said, It is better to wear out than to rust out. And he preached one more time. The audience was captivated by his passion as he began to preach. And then at the end of the sermon, he recited the words he had written Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. The darkness deepens, Lord, with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. Swift to its close ebbs out life's little delay. Earth's joys grow dim to glories pass away. Change and decay all around I see. O thou who changes not, abide with me. Light desired what all of us truly desire. We want to know that there is a home that will never fade or break apart, even if our homes here do. And we want to know that while we're here suffering in a broken world, that he will be with us. Emmanuel, God will stay and be with us that there's a father and a family that forever shall remain. You know, I was a youth pastor for a few years. I would never do that again. I'm terrified of teenagers still today. When our kids became teenagers, I just left for about four years and came back when No, I'm just kidding. I did whatever my wife told me to do. But during the years of youth, I remember some of my uh, youth group coming in and saying, Pastor Jeff, I, I hear what you're saying. And I, it's not that I don't believe it. It's just God. Really cramps my style of what I want to do right now. So I'm going to leave, but I'll come back in my adult years. I'll come back. Is that okay? I'll leave right now, but I'll come back in my 20s. You know, Henry Francis Light wrote a part of his song addressing this Thou on my head in early years didn't smile, and though rebellious and perverse meanwhile, thou hast not left me oft as I left thee. Onto the clothes, O Lord, abide with me." Come on, God, let's finish this life together. The overarching message of Christmas is that God came near, Emmanuel, God with us, the desire of the human heart. and You've heard me say before that you you desire food, and you desire love, and you desire intimacy, and the reason you desire those things, and every human desires them unless there's something really, really wrong, is because those things food and intimacy and love, they they exist. You have an innate desire for them. That's the same thing about the sense of beyond. You know that you are more than your body, that the essential you, that's why when you get my age and you've gone to the bathroom for the third time in the middle of the night and that's why that you don't look in mirrors anymore, you just don't want to see what's really there. Because part of you thinks you still look like you did when you were in your 20s and you're surprised, who is this guy? (laughs) Because the real you doesn't age like this you. It matures, but doesn't age like this. You know something beyond exists. You desire it because it is real. And every time Christmas comes around, I realize how desperately I want to go home. But not only go home, but to feel the presence of home even now. That's why Light wrote these words, I need your presence every passing hour. What but for thy grace can for the tempter's power, who like thyself my guide and stay can be through cloud and sunshine, through cloud and sunshine, Lord abide with me. One more thing you have to know about Francis Light and then I'll bring this thing home. Okay? One more thing, it should be mentioned that he became a poet in the most difficult way. He lost his mother at the age of 15 and he had to find a way to express himself. So he started to write poetry. Now I got to tell you, be honest, I've never been educated in the finer points of poetry. I've never really been drawn to it. The occasional haiku I I like, but poetry on a deep level, I got to tell you most of it I, I just don't understand, but his I do, and I think it's because I have run a similar race After his mother died, he wrote these words, stay gentle shadow of my mother, stay. Thy form but seldom comes to bless my sleep. He faithless slumbers, flit not thus away and leave my wistful eyes awake and weep. I lost my mom at a young age and I can tell you that almost immediately after my mom died, I started having dreams and I still have them. I'm 54 and the dreams are so real that you wake up in the middle of the night with real tears on your face. And leave my wistful eyes awake and weep. He started writing. By the age of 16, he wrote a poem on the basis of flowers. Again, this is another topic I'm not well versed in. I just know that's what you buy your wife when you're in trouble. He wrote a poem not about tulip nor a rose, but a a primrose, And if you know anything about these flowers, they last through winter. He was compelled by a flower that would keep during the winter time and the winter seasons of life. So he wrote, Hail, loving harbinger of spring. Hail, little modest flower, fanned by tempest's icy wing, dashed by the hoary shower. Then he finishes, Thy balmy breathe, thy softened bloom was ever welcomed here. But at this hour of wintry gloom, thy smile is doubly dear. There is something special that we can know something lasts even when things are falling apart. Jesus is called Prince of Peace, wonderful counselor, Emmanuel. And it's no surprise that there are people who are able to have incredible peace during the most horrific circumstances. And it's because they have a joy that is centralized, that is based not on this home, but on the one that is to come. And so when I was in London last year doing some work with Premier Radio, I asked Robin if we could visit once again Westminster Abbey, and we did. And right there at Westminster Abbey, beside the markers of Isaac Watts and Charles and John Wesley, guess what was in the middle? Henry Francis Light, 1793 to 1847. Abide with me, fast falls the eventide. And we're still seeing it everywhere. There's something about it that resonates with everybody. As a matter of fact, We mentioned earlier in 1927 when the man who was leading the singing at Wembley Stadium during the football final we mentioned, after leading songs of levity, suddenly surprised the crowd at halftime by asking all 100,000 plus to stand and they started to sing with one voice, abide with me. King George V rose to his feet, immediately bowing his head and others around him followed. Sir Winston Churchill was there, he sang all five verses, there are five verses, and people said later in a newspaper report recorded by the New York Herald Tribune that they had never witnessed anything like this in their lives as 100,000 people stood and sang the immortal hymn. The king himself remained silent through the first two verses in his own words just to be able to judge the intense feeling of the mighty company of singers. Since then it has been sung every year at every FA Cup final. And I thought I would be remiss if I didn't give you at least a 60-second example of that. I, I was afraid you wouldn't believe me. Because of intellectual property restrictions, we can't show it online, but if you're in the house, you can see it, here it is. When they sing, abide with me at the FA Cup final, they sing the first and the last verses. The first verse, abide with me, fast falls the eventide, the darkness deepens, Lord with me abide. When other helpers fail and comforts flee, help of the helpless, oh, abide with me. And then they sing the last verse, which is profound, hold thy thy cross before my closing eyes, shine to the gloom and point me to the skies. Heaven's morning breaks and earth's vain shadows flee. In life, in death, O Lord, abide with me. Dietrich Bonhoeffer on December 2nd, 1928 said, the celebration of Advent is possible only to those who are troubled in soul and only to those who know there is something beyond, something that is coming that is greater. And then he says, when once again Christmas comes and we hear the familiar carols and sing the Christmas hymns, something happens to us, the hardest heart is softened. We recall our own childhood, we feel again how we then felt, especially if we were separated from a mother. A kind of homesickness comes over us for past times, distant places, and yes, a blessed longing for a world without violence or hardness of heart. But there is something more, a longing for the safe lodging of the everlasting Father. David said, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. And in Psalm 91, he says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. And even tonight, there are plenty of soldiers in mesh tents all around the world who have a sense of home even though they're living on a sand dune halfway around the world because they know they belong to God and so do you. There's one final caveat and we're finished. You might say, well, yeah, but Pastor Jeff, you said that, that God came, and Emmanuel, God with us, the baby in the manger that came to take us home, well, what's the delay? Let's go. Was it really necessary for him to be born as a baby and then grow up, teach, become a man, and be crucified? And the answer to that is, if we want to go home, yeah. And the reason is, we want to go home, God wants us to come home. We got a little issue we got to deal with first, because God is holy righteous, pure, and would be unjust if he just turned a blind eye to so many of the things that happen in our world. There is a day. There's a day when we stand before God and every person in the room knows it, and the only time some of us think about it is at funerals, but you know you know that something beyond exists, but somehow we don't want to think about it because we all know what's true of every one of us. That we're all sinners. I am, everybody backstage, you are. And you may passionately deny that you are, but I can promise you if I followed you around for 24 hours, it would be empirically verified. And with me, you don't have to wait 24 hours. Just follow me home when I get from the 57 to the 210. You'll find out. Pastor Jeff was right. He's a sinner. And it is somewhat humorous to all of us, I know that. We have a drawing that we draw around here to remind us that there's so much pleasure in this life and this world, but there's also an enormous amount of pain and discontentment associated with it. And What's missing in our lives is we know there's a home that we've somehow been separated from and we're trying to find our way back, and so we do it by the pursuits of this world. That's how we do it. If I can get enough money, enough stuff, then I'll have my hope and security. Seldom do we stop to think what Jesus said to the rich young man, you fool, tonight your life may be required of you, then who will get all these things? Nothing wrong with having money and being wealthy, as long as that's not where your hope is because it will fade away. And so Jesus came and died on the cross so that we who were separated from God could walk across and go home again because he died for our sins past, present, and future. That's the simplicity of the gospel and you say, well, I don't like the gospel because it's exclusive. Well, it's only exclusive because only Jesus died for (laughs) your sin. There's no other who offers you atonement and so the relationship is open to all, all who would humble themselves at the cross and the reason, listen carefully, the reason Jesus comes as a baby is a baby is vulnerable. A baby can be rejected. And so, what God does in your life is give you enough information to know He's there and to pursue Him, but not so much as to overwhelm your free will to choose to pursue and love the lover of your soul. And everybody gets to decide. And I hope this Christmas you'll decide to pursue Him as He's pursued you. So, one day you'll go home. And that home you'll discover is the place for which you've always been searching. Father, thank you for uh, the power of your word and the Christmas narrative and I pray right now that there would be an eye-opening experience for so many. Maybe for those who believe that this is all about religious matters of doing this and doing that and making sure I say this or travel here or go there that something would happen that they would begin to understand perhaps for the first time, not about any of those things. Those may be byproducts along the way, but ultimately it's about relationship and humility. Understanding the first Christmas happened because God came near to show us there is another world and that he will someday take us to be with him. And the journey begins as we humble ourselves before the cross and receive his great, indescribable gift of grace and mercy, where we are invited into his family and will be with him forevermore. In Christ's name, amen.